You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Good morning, once again, with uh, Rush and Kevin both being out of town this week. You get a lot of, get a lot of me. Um, that happens sometimes, every once in a while, so sorry, get a look at this mug. <laughs> Please open your Bible if you have it with you to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation 15. We'll be looking at all uh, eight verses there. I think it'd be helpful for us to just read through those verses as we kind of get settled in for where we are this morning. Let's hear, hear these together. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire and those who were victorious over the beast in his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God and they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God and the song of the Lamb saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God the Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, and their chest wrapped with gold sashes. And one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke and the glory of God, or from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Well, it's only eight verses, but as you can hear, there's a lot happening here. There's a lot for us to unpack. There's a lot of things for us to consider this morning. And I want, to con- I want to submit to you that the main thing that we need to be thinking about this morning is a question of worship. I think that's what these verses at their heart are all about. We have here these people who are, who are rescued. And what do they do? Coming out of the sea, coming out of the fire, what they do is they sing a song. They celebrate and we know together that worship from Scripture is something more than just singing. Worship is an all-of-life thing. It's a, it's a serving of God with everything that we have, but it's not less than singing either. The thing that we were all just doing together, singing, that is worship to God. And so the thing that we want to see, that we want to think about here this morning, is a question of worship. Really, in, in chapter 15, what we have here is a bit of a pause. It's a pause before this final series of judgments. But it's a vision of these people who are coming out, this, these people who are rescued, this 144,000. We have martyrs here. We have people coming out rescued. They're victorious over the beast, and they're singing They're playing harps. They're standing on this sea of glass. And we know from before in the book, the sea surrounds the throne of God. And the sea is here mixed with fire. 
a symbol of judgment throughout the book. And we are told here multiple times that this is the final, this is the end. The wrath of God in verse one is finished. What's coming up right here is the end, the final judgment. Multiple times, even in these few verses. So we know the end is coming. We know that all of the things we've read again and again and about, about judgment after judgment after judgment, it's beginning to come to an end. We're rolling into the last few chapters of these next couple of months are going to be a little bit different for us than, than the ones that we've seen beforehand. The, the uh, tabernacle here we see, we, we see that the temple filled with smoke the tabernacle of testimony mentioned in verse 5. The commentators will note that usually when you're talking about the tabernacle, you're talking about what's going into the tabernacle, what it takes to come in. But here we have something coming out, these angels, this plague. God's holiness and his power are on display. No one can enter until these judgments are complete. And so we have a vision of the end. But... This vision of the end is a vision that's seen with eyes that are worship-filled. And that's what I want to try to help us see and grasp this morning, is what it means to have worship-filled eyes. When we are captured by a vision of who God is, when our heart is convinced that He is worthy, then it changes the way that we see everything else around us. This is the end viewed through worship-filled eyes. And I want to help us this morning. I think this text helps us this morning to be people who have worship-filled eyes. We've seen that at the center of this is worship. It's a song, but it's a song about the works and the character of God. These people could be concerned about all kinds of other things. They could be uh, talking about, man, did you see all the things we just went through? All of the difficulties that we just endured. You, you may have seen a, a solar eclipse or a meteor shower, and everyone's talking about it for days or weeks after that. Our kids still talk about that solar eclipse a couple of years ago. They've seen the sun darken. These things have happened. But what's concerning them is not that. That's not what they're talking about. They're not talking about the diseases that have spread across the world. We've seen how when that happens, it's a topic of conversation. No. They're zooming out. They're getting a bigger picture. Those, those little things like the, the star that our solar system revolves around are insignificant. The thing to pay attention to is our great and marvelous God. That's what their eyes are fixed on. And that's what we should see this morning too. There are, of course, two different ways we could see this whole thing. There are two different ways that the people in this time will see this. There are those who will see it this way, as the work, the great and marvelous work of the Lord God Almighty, who is righteous and true in all his ways, or those who are filled with lies and deception of the beast we've seen before, of his number, of his name, of his image. 
Those who just run along with what seems like it's easier at the time. That's what the majority of people were doing. And it was easier to just run along with them. They were, they were more concerned with the practical. Well, if, if, I, if I don't do this, how am I going to buy and sell? How am I going to eat? How am I going to do all these things? Life seemed like it would have been easier following the deception of the devil, of the beast. But as we see here, those decisions have a cost. And in these chapters to come, they're coming due. There is a, a particular danger for all of us that we would not see our lives with worship-filled eyes. When we don't see our lives in the light of who God is, of his worth, of what he's done, then the other things in life begin to take on an outsized influence. They seem more important. The false stories that are being told about the world and what we need to do and how we should be and what life looks like, those start to seem more plausible. We become susceptible to the lies. We overreact to things or we underreact to things. We find ourselves filled with, with anger at what people are doing. We find ourselves maybe filled with anxiety about things that shouldn't. Sometimes we let things that we know we should be doing go undone. We're passive, some of us, too easily pleased. We're looking for simple solutions. That is what we see in those who are following after the beast and his image and the number of his name in verse two. In contrast to that, we wanna, we wanna see what these saints, what these who were victorious over the beast were doing. They had worship-filled eyes. That's what they were doing. They're enraptured with who God is. Church, how do we get there? How do we get to where we see life and everything through worship-filled eyes? Through, through the lens of our God, of his character, of what he's done. That's what we want to see this morning. That's what I want to try to help us to do. To try to see the end and therefore everything else that leads up to it through worship-filled eyes. One of the things that we're going to be able to do is, is to look at what, what these saints, to look at what these folks who are victorious over the beast, it says. What, what were they doing? What does this look like for them? One of the things we see them doing here that we should be doing as well on the regular is recalling their salvation. They are they're looking back to the things that God has done. One thing that's remarkable that we've seen again and again about the book of Revelation is that it pulls constantly from all of the rest of the Bible. And so there's a reference to this passage and this passage and this passage, and they're all back to back. And one of the things about chapter 15 here is that this is uh, the, the biggest concentration of Exodus imagery really anywhere in the book of Revelation. 
John is very deliberate. This vision is, is designed to help recall in the minds of the readers the great exodus of God. You can see them when you look at it. There's all sorts of things that are happening here. We have plagues. You remember that when, when Israel was in Egypt, they had the plagues. We have the sea, this rescue through the water. We have the people uh, coming through. We have them singing. We say specifically in verse 3, the song of Moses. And we just heard Mike read from the book of Exodus, chapter 15, the song of Moses. That's the song that Israel sang when they were rescued, when they were on the other side of the Red Sea, and they just walked through the water and watched the water close in on the, on the Egyptian soldiers. They sang about the victory and the power of the God. That's what these believers are doing at this time and at this place. Here, even in the end, when we get to the, the tabernacle, the smoke filling, the glory of God and its power in verse 8, all of these things are, are things that we see in the book of Exodus. That, that's where the book of Exodus ends, if you haven't read it. It takes you right from slavery in Egypt of uh, Jacob's descendants out from Moses into the wilderness to Mount Sinai. And, and it ends with the glory of God appearing and dwelling among his people. That was the goal. That's where they needed to get to, out of Egypt and into the wilderness where they could worship their God, where God would be present with them. And that's what we see happening there. And that is the image that's being pulled that we're to consider here in, in Revelation 15. There are so many echoes and so many of the way these things work together. And I think it's helpful for us to recognize that there are really so many ways that, that they play out and that we see this again and again. You know, we can think about the Bible and the structure of the Bible in a way like kind of Russian nesting dolls. You know those dolls, right, where, where there's one that looks one way, it's painted, and then you open it up and there's another one inside it that looks exactly the same, and then you open it up and there's another one inside it that looks exactly the same? There are all sorts of ways that the Bible does this sort of thing for us. And right here in Revelation 15, we are seeing sort of the biggest one. But I want to help us to connect the dots and put all of the pieces together so we see the way that the Bible hangs and we see the, the full impact that this passage is meant to have. For instance, we could think about the place of exile in the Bible. You remember right after Adam and Eve's sin, they're cast out from the garden east of Eden. They're away from God's place and they're not allowed to be back in God's place. That's, that's one place where God's people are in exile awaiting rescue. But then we read on a little bit later, we find ourselves in the book of Exodus, where God's people become slaves in Egypt. They're in exile. They're awaiting rescue to be brought back to the place where God is going to bring them. Well, they're brought out, they're put back into the land, and then later on, we read, by the time we get to the book of Daniel and Esther, the people are back in exile, this time in Babylon. They're trying, they want so badly to be back, to, back in the land, and we find psalms we read about that time where, where Israel is crying out, how can we sing in a foreign land? They want to be back home. They want to be where they belong. But it's this exile upon exile upon exile. By the time we get to the New Testament, God's people are under Roman rule. And at that point, Rome is talking as if they are the world. The Roman world is the world. 
It belongs to them. Caesar is basically God. And Jesus stands in that place in front of Pilate and says, my kingdom is not of this world. And he does things that that particularly point out to the people around them that they're not following God the way that they should. And they crucify him for it. And so that by the time we get to Revelation 15, now we find that this exile language, this looking at Rome and the, and the, the, uh, the, the exile that God's people are in, now encompasses the entire world. All of us, scattered about, we read in 1 Peter, are, are like exiles. All of us, believers, we are pilgrims and strangers in this land. We are not where we belong but we know that God is at work just like he was before, just like he's been in every other instance to bring his people back home. That's the story. That's what we see. It's exile, 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 which then means rescue, 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 until finally we reach the outside and it's a rescue. There are others that we can see even here in this passage other nesting dolls, other ways to think about this. You might have noticed that interesting verse in the beginning of of Genesis chapter one, where it says the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. That that word has always, uh, as long as you can read people talking about the Bible, have always been a bit confused by what that word means because it's a word that that almost is like a bird. It's like uh, um, brooding is the sort of word, like hovering over a nest kind of thing is almost the sense that it has. You're picturing the Spirit of God hovering over the waters like this this kind of bird. The waters in Genesis 1. What we find is that these waters continue again and again. By the time you get to Genesis chapter uh, 9, we find the entire world being engulfed in a flood and God only bringing a few people through the waters. We just read from Exodus 15 where we see God's people rescued again through the waters of the Red Sea. When God talks about what's happening in the life of Jesus, Jesus takes on baptism. He goes through the water, and that picture is his death. That is all a picture together. And then now when we see this picture here in Revelation 15, those who were victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, they were standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God, and they sang. This is the outside of the doll. We've gotten to the end. We've seen the way that all of it fits together. The way that every bit of being rescued through the water is God grabbing his people and drawing them out to himself so that they might worship him, so they might know him and love them as they were designed from the beginning. You can even see it in the kind of nesting doll thing in the death of the firstborn in Scripture. These are just three examples, by the way. These are, these are all the way throughout the Bible, these kinds of things. And these aren't even complete lists. You can find other instances of water and exile. But in the firstborn, by Genesis chapter 4, we have Adam and Eve's first child being killed. And we read there that his blood cries out from the ground. Something is wrong and something needs to be set right. We can also see, um, in, in uh, some ways, the sacrifice of Isaac, if you know that passage from Genesis uh, in the 20s, 
2022? I don't know one written in front of me. The death of Egypt's firstborn in the Passover. You remember the, the 10th plague, the last one, the one that finally got Pharaoh to say, fine, get out of here, be gone, was when the angel of God went through Egypt and killed the firstborn of Egypt. And the people of God were rescued because they put the blood of the lamb over the doorway. They followed God's instructions and the, the angel passed over those houses. So it's called the Passover. There's that instance where God's people are rescued by the death of the firstborn. So then Jesus becomes the lamb, the firstborn, the one that dies for the people. We're rescued because of his work, because he is the firstborn. And then in a way, we actually see something similar here, where martyrs, those who die in this time at the end, are victorious over the beast. And it's their very death that God uses to accomplish his purposes. Their lives echo the life of their Savior. That's how our lives should be as well. There's no way to, to just look at a passage like this and catch all of that that comes through, except by committing yourself to pay attention to God's word to read it again and again and again so that we can see these themes, so we can see the way that these things work. The repetition is what you and I need. We need to hear it again and again and again. There's a kind of sneakiness that comes with narratives, with stories, where it kind of, you, you don't even realize you're learning something and then all of a sudden it hits you. Oh, God's faithful. I see what this is showing me. When another moment in life pops up that's similar to one that you've read about, then we know what that's supposed to look like. We're disarmed. Recall your salvation. Remember it. Do not let it become something that is, that is too familiar or something that you think you, you know all about or somehow have mastered. I was thinking about that this week. My kids uh, discovered in a, a public school music class something that you probably all have seen or know about, and that is, that is the, you know what I'm talking about, the corn song? All right. Most of you probably know this. There's, there's a, uh, an interview that happened where uh, someone was interviewing a kid on the street and the video showed up online and the kid is eating like a piece of street corn and he starts talking about how much he loves the corn and he asks him a bunch of questions kind of leading him about the corn and the kid's just going on and on about how great this corn is. And when I, when I put butter on it, everything changed. And as the internet, is, as the internet does, right, Someone took it and turned it into a song. So then you have a song that is based, that is built off of this kid singing this thing. And I love, I love the thing that he says. He says, I can tell you all about it. The little kid, I can tell you all about it. That's a part of, the, part of the interview of the song. He loves corn so much, and he tries to describe it. He calls it a big lump of knobs, and it has juice, right? Let me ask you this question, though. Does the kid really know all about corn? 
Like, if you're going to start a project where you have to create some kind of genetically modified corn to be able to grow in a different environment, do you want to hire that kid? I mean, like now, today. Does he know all about corn? No. He had a, he had a, had a great experience, a, a maybe even life-changing encounter with corn. But he does not know all about corn. You and I sometimes are like that little kid with the gospel. I, I could tell you all about it. But our descriptions, are, it's a big lump of knobs, I don't know. We get the basics. We know a little bit about it, but we don't, we don't know all that it means. We don't know all of the impact for our lives, but we'll tell you we know all about it. Oh, I know all about Jesus. I know all about what he's done. You don't know the half of it. You and I, we're only just getting started on understanding who this Jesus is and what he has done for us. We haven't mastered the gospel. We cannot let it become familiar. I want you to hear that this morning. And for some reason, I'm particularly burdened to say, if there are any here who are, who, are, who are maybe younger in the faith to teenagers or something like that, there's a real tendency as you grow up to think, I know all about that. I was raised with that. I know the Christian stuff. I know all the Bible stories. I know all that stuff. And you think you're going to grow past it. And the world is ready to tell you, yeah, there's a whole bunch of other things that you don't know. And you're going to dismiss this, or you're going to be tempted to dismiss this, like the kid with the corn saying, I know all about it. Don't be that. Don't do that. As you are, as you are tempted to, to think, I know about that, I need to do something else, I need to move on with my life, I need to get past this Christian upbringing or these other things, I want to encourage you to consider that, that maybe God is trying to draw you deeper that he's not satisfied to leave you with just the, the beginnings of it. Thinking you know. You don't know. You don't know. Like these believers here, we need to be rehearsing the salvation of our God to ourselves again and again and again. Do not let familiarity keep you from rehearsing your salvation. We run into that in community groups, kind of on the regular with some of our questions. Because of the, the nature of, of what we do as a church, right? I think we can say this out loud. We all, we all think it sometimes. We go through the sermon, and then we have some questions based off the sermon, and we go through those. And sometimes well, the, the what do we do portion starts to get a little familiar. We were just talking about this recently in community group. Well, what do we do? Pray about it guess we should read our Bibles. What do we do? Don't let those things become simple. Don't let those things become familiar and become rote. We need the things, the simple things that God has given us. We need that as individuals. We need that as a church. We need to be reminded about who God is about what he has done. Don't let familiarity keep you from rehearsing your salvation. So as we this morning are, are seeking to try to see what this picture of being worship-filled, of having worship-filled eyes, of seeing the end and all of life through, this eye, through these eyes, the first thing we've seen is that these believers, they, they recall God's salvation. 
But along with that and intertwined with that, and I think it's helpful to say it separately, is that they are remembering, they're recalling the Savior. They're looking at who God is. Look at what they sing when they sing their song. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of all the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? You alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. Your righteous acts have been revealed. As we said, the the book of Exodus is, is here throughout this passage. This song, as you probably have noticed, is not an exact quote from the other song that we read. It actually looks a little bit more like another song that Moses wrote that we see in Deuteronomy. But even that is not exactly the same. There are, but every one of these lines is found somewhere else in the Old Testament. It's filled with imagery and communicating the same message about who is like our God. And so for us to think about how we can see the Savior, how we can see God in this way, we need to look at this. Look at their example and what they sing and what they declare. Look even past that at verse 8 when the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and his power and no one was able to enter the the temple. We see here a a picture of who God is. We remember the story of Exodus from slavery to Sinai to worshiping God to the glory of God descending on the tabernacle. This song of Moses appears here, recalling and putting us back in that place. But look at the song. Look at it. Let's consider it together. The first part of it is is a parallelism that we see a lot in the poetry of the Bible. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. It's a way of saying sort of the same or very similar things back to back, one on top of another, that gives you an opportunity to think about the same truth from two different sides. And a lot of times, one is kind of intensifying the other in some way. And so that's what we see here. We're meant to pause and think about these great and marvelous works of God. The works and the ways of God are to have our attention. That's what we're supposed to be fixed on. And then it asks the question in verse 4, who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? This is a rhetorical question. That means that there's no answer in the text. We're meant to consider the answer for ourselves. I want to encourage you, when you're reading the Bible and you see a rhetorical question, pause for a second. That question is designed to get your wheels spinning. The author thinks you already know the answer. What would that answer be? Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? It should be no one. No one. Everyone will fear the name of the Lord and should glorify his name. But then, these last three lines, we get fours. You see the word there, four. That's always helpful to pay attention to when you're reading the Bible because it's giving you the reason you know, we just talked about how we can let familiarity be something that, that, uh, that, that lets us just kind of move through the motions. Well, this is something that can help us to stop and think. Why would we worship God? One of the, one of the not problems, but one of the difficulties sometimes of reading a book like Revelation or any of John's books in the New Testament is that he uses really simple words. 
And so we can be tempted just to read on through them. When he says, great and marvelous, great and awesome in some translations, you're like, oh, okay. I mean, I use those words all the time. Hold on a second. Stop and think. And that's what he's doing here. They're giving us reasons for us to consider a God who is worthy of worship. If we're going to recall the Savior together, we need, to, we need to look here and see why we would want to do that. There are three reasons for worship that are given here, right here in this song. Look at them. The first one, for you alone are holy. The first reason we are given for worship here is God's unique holiness. It's not like anything else. God is something different. God is not a sinner like we are. This is something that, that we, we must catch. We have, to, we have to latch onto. God is holy. He is pure. He's something other. He's something different. We see again and again in the Old Testament when people are going to worship God, they're going to come to the temple, they have to do something different. They have to sacrifice in just this way. They have to change their clothes. They have to wash in a particular way. And the whole idea is that the people would grasp that God is not like you. He is different. He is something beyond. He is holy. And we need to not be afraid to say that. I know there's a tendency, but but God is our friend and all these things. Don't go there too fast. Pause and think about the holiness of God. Realize that, that so much of the message of the Old Testament is reinforcing and reinforcing a God who is holy, who is different, who is beyond That's why it's so astounding that he would dwell among his people. If we go there too fast, we miss just how astounding it is that he would do that. You know, it's common for others who are trying to uh, understand God or talk about God to uh, maybe invent other kinds of gods. And God's holiness is this unique thing that we see in Scripture. You know, if you look at any of the ancient world among the Greek or the Roman gods, What you find about those gods, small g, right? What we find about those is that they look a lot like humans, right? They're kind of a mess. They do all the same kinds of things. They get angry and accidentally do something. God doesn't get angry and accidentally do anything. God is not like that. Sometimes there's a critique of Christianity. You may run across this in sharing the gospel, so it's worth paying attention to. Sometimes there's a critique of Christianity that says, well, I don't really believe in God. What I believe is that people just kind of project their, what they wish to be the case onto some invisible deity in the sky. And, and that's what God is. This is the sort of thing from Scripture that says, no, nah, absolutely not. Because that whole framework is meant to say, God is like us, only better. But the holiness of God tells us God is not like us. He is something different. And we're only like him insofar as he created us to be a mirror after him. We should actually see that the holiness of God, his unique holiness, is a cause for worship. Especially as we realize the miracle that it is that he would want anything to do with sinners like you and I. Why why would he do that? I'm causing messes left and right with the stuff that I do or didn't do and all the rest, right? You and I are too. That's, that's how we live our lives as fallen people. But God isn't like that. 
He actually can't have anything to do with that. And yet he made a way. He made a way by, by becoming human himself in the second person of the Trinity in Jesus, of taking on our sins, of bringing us to himself. God's unique holiness is a reason to stop and consider. It's a reason for us to worship God. Another reason that we're given here that we should worship God is all the nations will come and worship before you. The gathering of the nations is a reason for you and I to worship God. Do you hear that? Do you see that? I think maybe sometimes we talk about missions, we talk about things around the world, we, we think about things in the news or we, other parts of the world, and we just kind of skim over that. But we don't really stop to think about the way that God is doing a work around the entire world. It is an inclusion of the whole world. And it's important for us to see this in contrast because right now, ours is a moment where people are going to tell us that missions isn't a good thing, that we're exporting our Western ideas to other parts of the world and we're acting like we're better. That's not what it is. That's what it's been, unfortunately, at times, and we have to be real about that. But that's not what this is talking about. When God declares that all of the nations will come and worship before them, that's not stripping people of their unique ethnic identity. They don't become less themselves when they come to God, when they worship God. Exactly the opposite. They become more themselves, more what they're intended to be. As the nations come to God, and as you and I realize that God's work isn't just these few things that we've seen in our limited church experience, but it actually is all of this picture of what God is doing all around the world and in so many different places and in so many different ways, our vision of who God is explodes. He is so worthy of our worship. We're no longer surprised that God is moving in all sorts of ways in other parts of the world. As we were in Turkey now, I guess it's October, so two months ago, we're hearing stories about the way that God is working in other countries where people are having dreams about Jesus or about uh, people who they know that are helping to draw them out of their faith and to faith in Jesus. That's an astounding thing. Do you have a box for that? Do you have a box for God who's working miracles all around the world? Because he is. That's our God. Pause and be amazed. That's our God. The nations will come. They will worship before him. Finally, the third reason we're given that we should worship God or they're given to worship God is your righteous acts have been revealed. There's a revealing of God's work, a revealing of his plan that happens here at the end. That's what they're celebrating. Now, you and I, we don't always live in that moment, right? That's the thing that we've been seeing about the book of Revelation. The entire word in the Greek, the apocalypse, means an uncovering or an unveiling. That's what the book is doing for us. It's helping to, to unveil the spiritual realities that are always behind the things that we're seeing in the world around us. That's what's going on here in the whole book. 
And at this moment, they're seeing the final end time realization where all of it becomes clear, where the whole plan comes together, where everything, you realize all of the different pieces. And they're astounded by it. Things don't always make sense when we're in the middle of it. I hope that's been one of our takeaways from the book of Revelation as we go along. I hope we realize that that part of the message here is that in the middle of life, in the craziness of suffering, in the things that are going on, it doesn't always make sense. But our God, he knows what he's doing. Our God has a plan, and it will all come together. Everything will be the way that it should be. And having worship filled eyes allows you to see what God is doing in the middle of it. You know, it's a little like uh, being able to see the, a work of art, to be able to see the way that, uh, that um, a great artist connects one work to another work to another work. And as you begin to understand more about who the artist is and what they do, you can make sense of what's happening. Well, you might, a great example of this that I love is this, this painting, A Girl with Balloon, that was painted by the, the British artist Banksy. Uh, you may, not, may or may not know about this or about Banksy. Banksy's, a, Banksy's an artist. No one really knows who he is. Really started as a graffiti artist, painting just things, art will just pop up places, and then got to be really famous for this kind of message about uh, against capitalism and, and this sorts of things that they do. Well, there was this great moment back in 2018 where Banksy had this famous painting of a girl sort of chasing a red balloon, black and white girl, red balloon. And the painting was placed into an art show. And, and it, was, it was sold at auction, is what was happening. So they're in an auction, they've got the painting hanging on the wall, all these people are together, and the bids start going up for this thing because it's already, it's already famous. Now remember, the artist has this whole message against rich people and against all of this whole thing, right? So they start bidding. The bidding goes up. And it goes up, and it goes up. We're in hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands, crossing to the millions. It finally sells for $1.4 million, and the gavel drops. And the second the gavel drops, this is great, you can see the video online. The second the gavel drops, there's a shredder that the artist built in to the bottom of the picture, and the painting drops and starts shredding. $1.4 million, gavel, shred. There it goes. And everyone in the room is amazed. You can hear the gasps in the video, like, oh my gosh, what just happened? How can, can, what's gone wrong? What's happened? Well, everyone is pretty quickly able to put together the thing because they they know the artist. They know the message. They understand that they've been had, but they also understand that there's a bigger message. Actually, the work itself was retitled and then resold three years later for $25.4 million, which is insane, right? Like, the art world is nuts. But, but what is it about that that catches people? What is it about them that were like, yes, that, that is worth and going for 18 times more than it sold for when it was already over a million dollars? The thing about it was the artist had a plan. And it was executed perfectly. Right in that moment, when someone drops $1.4 million, the whole thing shreds in front of their face. The moment is recorded, 
and everyone realizes that's a genius. That's, that's impressive. The thing itself is a work, of, a work of art, of performance art, right? The, the reason that it jumps in value, the reason people see it, is because they can see the way that it connects to the story of what the artist is doing. And the artist has perfectly executed what they were trying to do. What a small shadow of the way that these worshipers are seeing the moment here. The moment when judgment is finally coming. The moment when the works of God are revealed and they are perfectly righteous acts. They're exactly the thing that they were designed to be. At exactly the moment that they were designed to be, even though it was hidden from the beginning. Let's not be the kind of people who ignore God's design in the world around us. Keep the kind intentions of your Savior in the forefront of your mind. I'm going to say that again. It's our second application. Keep the kind intentions of your Savior in the forefront of your mind. God has a plan. He's working it. It will work perfectly, even though sometimes it doesn't always make sense. With our remaining time, I'd like for us to see the way that these worship-filled eyes, this worship-filled vision changes the view of judgment and what's happening here in these passages. I almost called the sermon a judgment through worship-filled eyes, but I think that the end is more helpful, but, but it really is right at the center of what's changing their sight. What they're seeing differently is this work of judgment. You know, from reading the book of Revelation, we've already seen there are these cycles of seven plagues. There are the the seven seals and then the seven trumpets. And right now we're about to go into the seven bowls. This is our last, it's okay, it's our last set of seven. There's only one more to go. And the remarkable thing about this one is it's specifically tailored. What we read again and again is this really is going after the beast and his followers, this now is, is no longer about everyone. This is, this is God's judgment on the world, just like he did back with Egypt. Let my people go. When Pharaoh doesn't, the plagues come. In this moment, God is rescuing his people. He's bringing out his own, and the world is experiencing judgment. We can see here that these plagues have a specific purpose, hitting specific people. And we see God's plan is always in that kind of thing. We shouldn't be confused. We should, we should remember God's purpose and God's design. You know, judgment is something that I think we all tend to shy away from when we read these passages, when we read passages like some of these in the Bible. And, uh, you know, in our church, as we've read through Revelation and, and the book of Amos before that, we've seen no shortage of, of judgment. There's plenty of it in the Bible. And one of the things I hope we've seen again and again is that this is, this is not something that we should shy away from. It's not something we should, we should be scared of when we read our Bible or when we talk about our Bibles. It, it, it isn't that sort of thing. It actually is a good thing. You know, right now, this is a unique moment where people are looking for justice. They want what's wrong to be made right. And they have no problems in many cases of saying, you, the perpetrators, should not be able to continue living your life the way that you were. 
You need to be gone. You need to be canceled. You need to be removed. All of these are attempts of the world grasping at a vision of what justice looks like, of what judgment looks like. But the problem with human judgment is it's, it's never all the way. It's never right completely. I think, in fact, the, the two of the key words that we should think of when we think of judgment are found right here in the song in verse 3, righteous and true are your ways. That's the problem with, with human attempts at justice. Not that we shouldn't do it, not that we shouldn't seek that, but we have to realize these are the limitations. They're, they're limited in righteousness and they're listed limited in truth. They're limited in truth because none of us know all the facts. We don't know exactly why someone did what they did. Sometimes we'll wrongly ascribe motives. I don't know why she did that. He's just out to, he's, you know, we'll do that kind of thing. We don't know the motives. It might be that somebody just didn't know. Or it might be that they did know and they were pretending like they didn't know. And we're always trying to figure out, well, like, was this a deliberate thing or was it not a deliberate thing? And justice gets muddy for humans, because we don't have perfect truth when it comes down to it. We know that um, it isn't just a matter of, what things like this really do tell us in the Bible is that evil is not just about ignorance. It's not that, well, if people knew better, they wouldn't do it. No, there is actual evil in the world, and it's in your heart too, and it needs to be rooted out by God himself. It needs to be addressed. And it can't just be educated away. That's the sort of thing that the Bible will tell us again and again. We also fail in our attempts at justice in righteousness. Sometimes the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Sometimes we get it wrong. We'll try to, try to throw somebody out in a way that, that doesn't make sense or, or uh, cause, uh, bring some kind of uh, something down on somebody else. I mean, this happens with kids. It happens in the countries. I might try to help one kid uh, in one way because something's going wrong, and then I go and I set the whole thing off where the other kids are like, that's not fair. You can't do that because, you know, you didn't do that for me, and the whole thing starts, right? Human justice is never perfect. I'm going to get it wrong sometimes. It doesn't mean that we don't try, but it does mean that we recognize our limitations. And it does mean that we look forward with hope for the day when the perfectly righteous and true judge and king will set down his rule forever. And everything will be back the way that it was intended to be. When death will be no more. When the exiles that we've seen again and again and again and again in Scripture are finally over and all of God's people return home with their God, with their family. And all of them together will celebrate the goodness of our God.
One thing that we may be confused about when we read something like this is we might see these who are victorious over the beast and we might tend to think that these are, these are overcomers, these are special, these are u- unique, elite. Well, in some ways, yeah, they're doing things that you and I don't do. But, but is it because of what they did? Is there a cause for judgment? That's the other thing that happens with judgment. Is it, you and I will try to pretend like we're better than somebody else. We create this us versus them kind of thing when it can't be that way. Instead, when we fully grasp what God has accomplished for us by grace, we, we affirm that God will carry through, preserve, allow us to persevere through all of the rest of life by His grace. And so as we seek to live these things out this week, as we seek to be worship-filled people, seeing the world in that way, do not forget to let grace drive your obedience. Because understanding grace is the thing that allows us to believe in judgment without being judgmental, if we might make that distinction. That's the the key difference. Because you and I don't have a claim to being better. We're not saved because of something that we did. We didn't somehow figure out the mystery of the universe. Rather, the God who made the universe stepped into this world. He brought his people out of slavery. He brought you and I out of bondage to sin if we trust in him. He brought us through the waters, through the grave, dying to our sin and being raised to new life with him. And that's what makes his people celebrate. That's what should make you and I celebrate. As we close our time together, we're gonna sing again and I hope that as we sing together, this will be a time of true, not just singing, but worship. That we'll be captivated by the words that will remember the ways that they rehearse to us the gospel and remind us of who God is and tell us about the hope that we have in our Savior. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for our time. We thank you for your word and we thank you for giving it to us. I pray that as we sing together that we would truly remember who you are and what you've done that we wouldn't be distracted by uh, what's happening for lunch or any of the other things that we might be concerned about. But in these last remaining few minutes, we would fix our eyes on you, that we would have worship-filled eyes, that as we leave this place, we might see the world around us in light of you, of who you are, of what you are doing. Give us that confidence and give us that hope. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.